The Old Testament reading for today is from Zechariah chapter 4. The whole chapter we'll read. It's not long. And then the sermon text for today is Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. Uh, We'll be dealing with this text today and also next week. This is going to be another two-part series, uh, like the last one where we considered the first two verses in Revelation 11. So Zechariah chapter 4, let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's Word. Remember that this text has been selected, uh, not randomly, but purposefully, because uh, what is said here uh, stands in the background of the text in Revelation 11 that we will come to consider. Here, Zechariah the prophet uh, saw a vision And here are his words. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? Zechariah said, I see and behold a lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. This is in reference to the house that is the temple. This is referring to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed. The people carried off into captivity. Here is a guarantee that the Lord would rebuild the house at the hands of Zerubbabel and his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The prophecy here, to briefly explain it, is meant to serve as a kind of guarantee to the people that the temple of God in Jerusalem would indeed be rebuilt. It would be rebuilt by the hand of Zerubbabel, also the hand of the high priest. These are the two anointed ones who are symbolized by the two olive trees. This would have been a great encouragement to the people of God as they were returning from captivity. Don't you agree? And why would the temple be rebuilt? Because of the strength of man? No, not by strength, nor by might, but by My spirit, says the Lord, the spirit would empower the work. The spirit would empower the outpouring of perpetual oil so that those lamps might burn forever. Do you understand the meaning of this text in brief? Now let us go to Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. Here the Lord is speaking. It's a continuation of verses 1 and 2. And the Lord says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees 
and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I hope, brothers and sisters, that as I am reading this, all sorts of images from the Old Testament are coming to mind. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. He was crucified, by the way, not in Sodom or Egypt, but in Jerusalem, there is something symbolic going on here. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after these three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So far, the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that the Lord would bless the explanation of God's word and also help us to apply this word to our lives. You know, this image came to mind. I don't know, I can't remember which car it was. Perhaps it was my very first car, an old 65 CJ5. The thing was orange, and it was a lot of fun to drive. Maybe it was a different one. Uh, Maybe my parents can remember. But I had a car. I drove a car, a stick, that would shift out of gear from time to time. Do do you know what I mean? You'd be cruising along, and then it would just kind of pop out of gear. Uh, I don't think it did it very often, but it was just kind of a strange phenomenon, right? To be driving along and to be moving along and then pops out of gear and you can't move forward anymore. You've got to put it back in. I feel like um, the, the tendency for us is to, to pop out of gear when studying the book of Revelation. It's very easy for us, especially given that we have been raised in dispensationalism. Most of us have. So as we study the book of Revelation, here we are moving along, employing sound hermeneutical uh, practices, really dealing with the symbolism of the book, and we're doing well, and then it's easy for us to slip out of gear and to revert to our hyper-literalism that we used to have. And so I do um, need to be somewhat redundant, brothers and sisters, in these sermons to remind us of the proper interpretation of this book. I think it is important here, in order for us to stay in gear and to handle this text properly, uh, to remember where we are in the book of Revelation. I'd like to say just a brief word about that, reminding us where we are in the structure of this book, we are still considering the second of two interludes found in the book of Revelation. I want you to remember, and this is very important, it may seem tedious and repetitive, but it's very important to to come to a proper interpretation of this passage, to remember that there was first an interlude found in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. It's there that we experienced a break in the action as the seal cycle was interrupted by the vision of the sealing of the 144,000 and also the vision of a great multi-ethnic multitude worshiping God in heaven. Uh, These visions concerning the 144 and the great multi-ethnic multitude 
were inserted between the opening of the sixth and seventh seal. Do you remember it? We were rolling along and then we had a break in the action and new visions were shown to us, right? Uh, The function of the first interlude uh, is clear. The visions introduced by the breaking of each of the seals have primarily to do with the judgments of God poured out upon the earth. You remember that, seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. God's judgments are being poured out, or at least something is being said having to do with those judgments. And so the question left hanging is this. What about God's people? What about God's people who live on earth? Will they succumb to God's wrath? Will they be subject to all of this and overrun by these judgments? Will they be caught up and swept away by God's partial and perpetual judgments as He pours them out upon the earth, as is pictured in the seal cycle. The interlude of chapter 7 answers that question by focusing in upon the church and portraying them, first of all, as a holy people numbered for battle and sealed by God, and then as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping. That's Revelation 7, 9. The seal cycle depicts the judgments of God poured out. The interlude of chapter 7 depicts the people of God protected, preserved on earth, and then finally brought safely home. Do you remember all of that being communicated there in chapter 7? Now, the second interlude is found inserted in between the sixth and seventh trumpets, In John 10, in Revelation 10, rather, John is recommissioned as a prophet. And in chapter 11, we we encounter a vision that mirrors the vision of chapter 7. That is what I want you to see here before we move on in explanation of this text. The the vision of chapter 11, which we are now considering, mirrors the vision of chapter 7. The chapters are not identical. They each have a slightly different message to communicate, but they are very similar. They are very similar one to the other. If we were to set them side by side, we would see that both the interlude of chapter 7 and the interlude of chapter 11 focus in upon the church, the people of God. Both answer the question, what about the people of God? Will they be caught up in the judgments of God poured out upon the earth, as portrayed in the breaking of the seals, and upon the wicked, as portrayed in the sounding of the trumpets? The trumpet cycle portrays God's judgment poured out upon the wicked, and the question that we are provoked to ask is the same. What about God's people? Will they be caught up in all of this or will God be able to protect and preserve them in the midst of these judgments? The answer in both interludes is essentially the same, though God's people will indeed suffer tribulation as they sojourn in this world. God will preserve them in the midst of it and will bring them safely home. The interlude of chapter 7, in that vision, the people of God are sealed while on earth, possessed and preserved by God. And then they are seen worshiping comfortably and securely, having been brought safely to their heavenly home. In the interlude of chapter 11, the people of God are not sealed, but instead they are what? They are measured. They are measured. They worship at the heavenly temple that is at once perfectly secure and yet vulnerable as those who worship their sojourn upon the earth in this age where the court outside the temple is left unmeasured, given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Those who worship God through faith in Christ worship at the heavenly temple and are measured by God, possessed and preserved by Him. They will suffer tribulation. When you read Revelation chapter 11, don't you get that sense? There's going to be tribulation for God's people. They will be trampled. Indeed, these two witnesses, as we continue to study this text, will be even killed for their testimony. And yet, we see that in the end, those faithful to Christ 
are vindicated and they are brought safely home. So both the seal cycle and the trumpet cycle depict judgment and both of the interludes, the one in chapter 7 and the one here in chapter 11, depict the preservation of God's people in the midst of tribulation. I know that it might seem tedious to say all of this by way of reminder, by way of background, but it's this that helps us to rightly handle the text that is before us. There are three points that we need to draw from the text that we're considering today. I'm going to state all three here, and then we will return today to consider point one in detail. Points two and three we will return to next week. Okay, So don't grow frustrated when we're almost to the end of our time and we still have only dealt with point one. That's all we're going to deal with today in detail. But let me state all three from the outset. First of all, when we consider this text here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14, we must recognize that the job of the church as we live in this present evil age is to witness. That is our task. The church is to witness. We are to witness or testify to the world concerning Christ, His life, death, and resurrection. We are to witness or testify to the world concerning the good news that in Christ, through faith in Him, there is found the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And we are to witness or testify to the world concerning Christ that He will indeed return. And this time He will return not to accomplish salvation, but to rescue those who belong to Him and to judge those who do not from amongst the living and the dead. The job of the church is to witness to all of these things. Secondly, we should see that the church ought to expect unrelenting and ever-increasing opposition from the unbelieving world. The world, that is those not given to the Son by the Father, will hate the testimony that they hear from the Christian witness. It will be an irritant to them. And they will respond with varying degrees of hostility. Uh, That is, unless the Holy Spirit is at work within them, drawing them to repentance. Uh, But the church, by and large, ought to expect opposition as she fulfills her task to witness. Thirdly, recognize that though the church on earth be trampled even to the point of death, she will in the end be preserved, rescued, and vindicated, and the wicked will be judged. This is the message communicated in this wonderful passage that is before us today. Uh, Let us consider the first point only, and let us consider it more closely. Brothers and sisters, consider this. The job of the church is to witness concerning Christ. That is the thing that is most clearly portrayed in this passage. Revelation 11.3 says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I want you to notice a few things about this verse. First of all, notice that this declaration is being made by God and that it is closely connected to what has just been said concerning the measuring of the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, and the leaving of the courtyard exposed to the trampling of the nations. Verse 3 goes with verses 1 and 2. That is my point. I divided them up for the sake of presenting it all to you. I could not get to it all at once. I couldn't even get to it in three sermons. I've divided it up, but I'll admit I divided it up rather unnaturally. Verses 1 through 3 all go together, in fact. And so the question that we might ask after we have considered verses 1 and 2 is, why would God leave the temple courtyard and the holy city, which symbolizes the uh, the, the bride of Christ, His church, 
as she lives in this world. Why would, why would he leave that exposed for this period of time there um, referred to as a period of time of 42 months? Why would he do such a thing? And the answer that verse 3 provides immediately is so that the church would do what? So that the church would, would witness to the world concerning Christ. The close connection between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3 makes it very clear. Jesus said to his disciples before his ascension, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. A witness is one who testifies in legal matters. A witness provides evidence. A witness says, this is what I saw. And so, brothers and sisters, the apostles of Christ were able to witness concerning Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Why? Because they saw it. They observed it with their eyes. They witnessed these things, and therefore they, the apostles of Christ, the eyewitnesses of Christ, were able to testify concerning the validity of them. Listen to how the apostle John begins his epistle, 1 John, same man who wrote the book of Revelation. Here is how he begins 1 John. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify. The Greek word here is martureo. It is the verbal form of the, the noun martus, which is the word that we find in Acts 1.8, which I have already read, and also in Revelation 11.3, translated as witness. In other words, John is saying, we have served as witnesses to these things. We have testified to these things that we have seen and heard and touched. What is he referring to? He's talking about Christ. We have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched him, even as in his resurrection. So we testify to these things, and we proclaim them to you, eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's that which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying, we, apostles of Christ, have been faithful to be witnesses concerning, to all, concerning all that we have seen. We have testified of it all to you so that you might have fellowship with us and with God. John is saying that as an apostle of Christ, as an eyewitness to his life, death, and resurrection, he is able to witness or give testimony concerning Christ. And here is the point that I'm trying to make. Brothers and sisters, you and I as Christians today are witnesses to Christ only so long as we are faithful to say what the apostles of Christ, who were eyewitnesses of Christ, have said. We are not eyewitnesses, are we, of these things in the way that John was, in the way that Peter was, even in the way that Paul was, having beheld the, the risen Lord with his own eyes and having been commissioned by him, having heard his voice. But we are witnesses today only so long as we are faithful to say what the apostles of Christ have said. The church witnesses concerning Christ only so long as she is faithful to build upon the foundational witness of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. Secondly, I want you to notice about verse 3 that these witnesses are said to have authority. They are said to have been, having been given authority. The church has authority as she 
witnesses and as she proclaims the word of God. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, the text says. And so when the church testifies, she does so with authority. She has authority not because it resides within her automatically, but only so long as she testifies to the truth according to the scriptures, which are the word of God written by the apostles or those overseen by the apostles and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I want you to notice that there are two witnesses, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, the text says. Two witnesses. Now, the hyper-literalistic, futuristic, dispensationalist, being driven by their erroneous presuppositions and their faulty method of interpretation, believes that this verse will be fulfilled when? In the future, when two individual persons, literal persons, will appear to witness for a literal three and a half years, 1,260 days, immediately preceding the time of the end. That's the interpretation that you and I grew up with, most likely. Yes, am I right? Am I presuppositions there? Okay. That, that's the view that most of us grew up with. According to the futuristic interpretation, it will be these two and only these two individuals who will experience all that is said in the passage concerning them. Are you following with me? We will eventually come to the rest of the passage, but it really only applies to who? The two individuals, the the literal two persons who will, of course, come in the future immediately before the end. These two individuals will in the future, serve as witnesses. These two will be persecuted. These two will be instruments of God's judgment. These two will ultimately be killed. And these two will be raised to life and caught up into heaven. Okay, that's the interpretation that many of us grew up with, the one I was raised with, the one that I've come to see as wrong. By the way, this is interesting to me. I hope it is interesting to you. What do those who hold to this position say? When they are asked, how will it be that when these two witnesses, who you say are literally two individuals, are killed, their corpses left in the street for three and a half days, as verse 9 describes to us, how will it be that people from all over the world will rejoice as they gaze upon their dead bodies? What is the popular explanation for that question? You get the question I'm asking. You have two individuals. They are ministering, I don't know, maybe in Jerusalem or something like that. They are killed. Their corpses are left on some street somewhere. And yet people, we are told, from all over the world, gaze upon their dead bodies and rejoice. Yeah, so how how could it be that the whole world sees those two and rejoices? And the answer uh, that is popular today is the one made popular by Tim LaHaye, the author of the More More Fictional Than You Know Left Behind series, Um, is that people will see these two witnesses slain on television, right? It'll be in the news. So everyone around the world will be watching their television and rejoicing. I bring this up only to highlight just how much the futurist interpretation divorces the book of Revelation from its original context, making much of the book to be all but meaningless to its original recipients, not to mention all who lived prior to the days of television or the invention of any technology that would make this sort of scenario possible. So prior to 1920, evidently, everyone who read this passage was just going, 
people all over the world are going to be able to see these two witnesses lying in the street and they're going to rejoice? How in the world can that be? They would have been just totally lost for an explanation for it. But now with the invention of television or the internet, we can uh, make up an explanation for it that they will see the event unfolding on some screen somewhere and will rejoice. In other words, if the futurists are correct, then all who read this text prior to the 1920s would have been puzzled, uh, thinking to themselves, how could it be? Um, I have already stated this, and now I'm being repetitive. I realize that now, so forgive me. It is far better to see that these two witnesses represent, symbolize, the church as she fulfills her role as witness. It is far better to see the text in this way and to recognize also that this will happen not in the future only, but is happening now. And it has been happening for nearly 2,000 years, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. The reason for understanding the text in this way are very numerous, and I'm going to mention just a few of them briefly to you. I feel the need, given how we have been raised and the view that is so popular today, to actually demonstrate this to you. I think if I was just to say to you, these witnesses represent the church, you'd be, you'd be rather discontent if we just moved on from it there. Maybe you trust me enough to say, yes, we get it. Uh, maybe you do. But I think it needs to be demonstrated. So why should we believe that these two witnesses symbolize the church? Why should we believe this? Well, here are a few reasons. One, we should understand the two witnesses to symbolize the church because of the, the length of time that they are said to minister. How long do they minister for, are we told? 1,260 days. It's three and a half years according to the calendar that was in use when the book of Revelation was written, 360 days a year times 3.5, 1,260. I mentioned last week that this same period of time reappears in the book of Revelation over and over again, but stated in different terms. The time span is three and a half years. It is referred to as 42 months, which is 12 months times 3.5 years in 11.2 and also in 13.5 through 7. So it appears as 42 months in those two places. And I just want you to recognize this, and this is in addition to what was said last week. In both of these passages, the emphasis is upon the people of God being trampled or assaulted. So in the two places where the period of time is referred to as 42 months, the emphasis of the text is upon the people of God being trampled or assaulted. The same time period is also referred to as 1,260 days here in 11.3 and also in 12, 14 through 17. 1,260 days is 3.5 years times 360 days, which, is one, which was one year according to the calendar in use when Revelation was written. Uh, the emphasis in both of these texts, when the number is 1,260, is the protection of the church in the face of her adversaries. Also, the language from Daniel 7 of a time's time and half a time or three and one half years is found in Revelation 12, 7. So all of these different ways of referring to the same period of time. In each instance, the time designation, be it 42 months, 1,260 days, or times time and half a time, here is where you need to tune in. In each instance, this period of time stands for the church age. It stands for the period of time where the people of God will be both protected and preserved spiritually by God while being persecuted by the enemies of God, being pursued by them. 
this is what the period of time of three and a half years came to stand for. It symbolizes trouble for the people of God, particularly trouble for the temple of God. Uh, the number is rooted, as you know, in Daniel chapter 7, kind of comes from there, it originates from there, biblically speaking. But it finds its significance historically in the three-and-a-half-year assault of the people of God and the temple of God at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes from 167 to 164. Just think of this for a moment. Antiochus Epiphanes assaulted the people of God and in, eventually desecrated the temple in fulfillment to that, uh, of that Daniel 7 passage. And how long did it take him to get all of that done? Historically, we know it took three-and-one-half years. Even more recent was the Roman siege against Jerusalem, leading to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Guess how long that siege lasted? Three and a half years. And I did not even mention last week the earthly ministry of Jesus, who was the eternal Son of God, who tabernacled amongst us, who is the true temple. How long did his ministry last? About three and a half years. He, the true temple, was assaulted and in the end, He was desecrated by lawless men. And so with all of these things and more, I mentioned more last week, in the background, it is not hard to see that this time frame of three and a half years is not to be taken literally as if we are still waiting for this period of 42 months, 1,260 days or three and a half years. But but it, it symbolizes, as every other number in the book of Revelation does, symbolize something, namely Tribulation for the people of God, particularly tribulation for the temple of God. And let me ask you this just to be sure that you have been paying attention. Who are the people of God under the old covenant, under the new covenant? Who are they? The answer is that it is all who have faith in Christ who are the people of God, no matter Jew or Gentile. The dispensationalists so misinterpret Scripture that some of them will even say in response to that question, ethnic Israel. Some will still say that. Who are the people of God? And some of them will still respond saying, ethnic Israel, they are the people of God. So everything comes to center upon them instead of Christ and His church. It is a distortion of the truth of Scripture. The New Testament is so abundantly clear, time and time again, declaring that this is not about genealogy anymore. This is not about ethnicity. This is not about physical birth. This is about Christ and all who are united to Him by faith. It's a spiritual thing. It is all who have faith in Christ who are the true children of Abraham, born not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, you see. And so what is symbolized here in the repeated emphasis to this three-and-a-half-year period of time is tribulation for the people of God. And let me ask you this question also. Maybe I'll even pause for you to answer. Where is the temple today? It is what? The church, the body of Christ, the temple is neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, John 4, 21. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, 2 Corinthians six sixteen. You, brothers and sisters, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this period of time refers then not to a literal 1,260 days or 42 months, but to the time between the first and second coming of Christ, a time marked by tribulation for the people of God as they sojourn on earth, a time marked by tribulation for the temple of God, namely the body of Christ, the church. This becomes especially clear in Revelation chapter 12, I think. We'll get there someday. Okay. So if it is true, 
that 42 months or 1,260 days symbolizes the church age. That is the time between Christ's first and second comings. And if it is true that this is the time in which these two witnesses minister, then they cannot be two literal persons, can they? Unless we believe them to be almost 2,000 years old today. But they must represent something else, some other entity that has existed for the last 2,000 years, will continue to exist until the Lord returns, and has witnessing to the world concerning Christ and its, as its mission. It has to be symbolic of that. Why are we surprised that it is? We're in the book of Revelation, after all. Everything is symbolic. We should be surprised if something is communicated in a just very blunt and literal fashion. So what do these two witnesses symbolize? They symbolize the church as she witnesses concerning Christ throughout the church age, as she suffers persecution at the hands of God's enemies, and as she is preserved and protected by God, uh, the promise being that we will be brought safely home. There are very many other reasons to think that these two witnesses are not to be taken literally, but are symbolic of the church. I'm going to briefly mention a few uh, more. Um, We'll do it very briefly for the sake of time, too. Notice that the witnesses are called two lampstands. Do you see that there in the text? The witnesses are called two lampstands. What do lampstands symbolize in the book of Revelation? Church. It's already been established. We would be surprised to see that the same object or image was now used to symbolize something else. They're called two lampstands. The lampstands have already been established as symbolizing the church. Three, notice that these witnesses are said to torment the whole world. The end result being that the whole world sees and rejoices over their death. So these two witnesses, as they do their work, irritate, provoke, torment the whole world, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's very hard to understand, especially from the 90 AD perspective, but even today, how two individual people could possibly have such an effect upon all who dwell on the earth from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Even with television, even with the invention of the internet, you would think that what people would do is just say, click, done with these two, they're an irritant to me, right? I would be surprised if their message was televised today. Would not their message just simply be ignored and oppressed? Two individuals preaching somewhere in Jerusalem. I mean, how does their message get to the whole world in order for it to be an irritant to them so much so that they kill them and rejoice over their death? I I can't imagine, especially from the 90 AD perspective, how you could make sense of this if these were literally two individuals. It's very hard to understand how that might be, but it is not hard to understand how this could be true of the church universal. Do you see what I'm saying here? Are you tracking with me? Indeed, her mission was to go and make disciples of all nations. Indeed, this is the mission that she has and will continue to accomplish. And we know that as she accomplishes her mission, she makes some friends... They are called the elect of God, but she makes many enemies as she testifies concerning Christ throughout the world. You see, these two are not literal individuals, but they stand for the church who has permeated the whole world even by now and will continue to do so with the message of Christ and the cross. Four, the oppression of the two witnesses in this passage mirrors the assault of the woman and her offspring by the evil one that we will be introduced to in chapter 12. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit here, but I think it is worth noting now that the oppression of the two witnesses in this passage mirrors 
the assault of the woman and her offspring by the evil one in chapter 12. And we will eventually come to this passage. But for now, keep in mind that in verse 15 of chapter 12, where the offspring of the woman are identified as being those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony, there is the word marturia again, of Jesus. So the two passages mirror one another. And ultimately, the offspring of the woman is declared to be those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony, martyria, of Jesus. Who is that? It's Christians, all Christians being symbolized there. It is the church and not only two individual witnesses that are oppressed for these 1,260 days in that passage. Five, and lastly, uh, notice that while the witnesses are clearly plural, they are in this passage also referred to in singular terms. This is probably the weakest of the arguments, I'll admit it, and it's the one that's most hidden to our eyes um, because it comes through more in the Greek text than in the English, but I really find it fascinating and and worth mentioning. How many witnesses are there? There are two of them. They're mentioned in the plural. But in verse 5, just listen to this. We read, And if anyone would harm them, fire, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. It's subtle, I know, but, but, but notice this. Them is in the plural, referring to the two witnesses, but mouth is in the what? Singular. You would expect the number to, to match, wouldn't you? Fire pours from their mouths. You know, it might just be an insignificant thing, but commentators do agree that there, there is something odd here. And the oddity is meant to grab our attention, I think, and to help the reader understand that though these... Though there are two witnesses, the two really stand for one thing, that is the church. The church speaks with one mouth as she testifies concerning Christ. And it's interesting to notice that the same thing happens in verses 7 through 9, but it is really hidden behind, I think, an unfortunate English translation. The text says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. In fact, in the Greek, the word translated bodies here in the ESV is singular. Uh, The beast conquers and kills them, plural, and their body, singular, will lie in the street. Again, you would expect the plural, so much so that our English translations feel compelled to provide it. But in the Greek, you get the singular. They are killed, but their body lies in the street. I think it is meant to grab the attention of the reader and to say that though we are talking in plural terms here concerning witnesses, really they stand for One thing, namely the body of Christ on earth, namely the church as she witnesses. More reasons could be provided for viewing the two witnesses not as referring to two literal persons, but to the whole church as she witnesses to Christ throughout the church age. For the sake of time, we must be content with these five. And you are all saying we are more than content, Pastor, with these five. But why two witnesses? Why two? What is that about? Why not one? That would work also, wouldn't it? One symbolizing the church. Why not seven? Seven churches at the beginning of the book. There are many reasons for this as well. The main one is this. According to the scriptures, a testimony is to be received as trustworthy and true in a court of law only when there are two or more witnesses. The principle is repeated throughout the Bible, but the first mention of it is found in Deuteronomy 19.15, which says a single witness 
shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Notice that these two witnesses have authority. They are said to stand before the Lord of the earth. There is something formal going on here. They are testifying as witnesses to the people of the world. And not only do they witness concerning the good news that life is found in Jesus' name. That is what we usually think of when we think of witnessing, telling the good news. But notice that they also witness concerning the guilt of sin. Concerning the guilt of sin. They are testifying to the world concerning that. That is why they are so hated, by the way. That is why they are an irritant to the world. These witnesses are two in number also because they are like Moses and Elijah who announced and pronounced judgments upon the idolatrous world in their day. Look at verse 5. Listen to how these witnesses are described. Listen to how their ministry is described. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during their days of prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When you hear that description, what do you think of? If you know your Old Testaments well, you think of Moses. And you think of Elijah and their ministry as they testified to an idolatrous world concerning their guilt and concerning their need to worship the one true God. Elijah shut the sky up so that rain would not fall in 1 Kings 17. He was an instrument of judgment in his ministry. It was through the ministry of Elijah that fire came down from heaven to consume the idolatrous in 2 Kings 1. Similarly, hear the word of the Lord to, I want you to hear the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, Jeremiah, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Do you hear the, the language used to describe the prophetic ministry under the old covenant, right? As you preach, Jeremiah, your words are going to be like fire and the people like wood, as you pronounce judgments upon them. The church is to witness or testify concerning Christ and concerning sin, just as the prophets did. The church is to call men and women to repentance. The church is to warn of judgment and to hold forth Christ. This was the ministry of Elijah and the prophets, and it is our ministry too. And the church is also like Moses. These witnesses are said to have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as as often as they desire. Uh, Certainly, this is to remind us of Moses and the plagues which led to the exodus of Israel. The church is to testify to the world concerning the glory of God and of Christ. She is to preach Christ from the law and the prophets. From the law and the prophets. Moses standing for the law. Elijah standing for the prophets. That is how the early church preached, by the way. Do, Do you know it? They did not have some watered-down gospel put only in tract form. But when they had opportunity to present the, 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 the gospel, they preached Christ from the Scriptures. And when we hear they preach Christ from the Scriptures, what, we are, what are we to think? The New Testament wasn't written by them. They preached Christ from the Old Testament. They preached Christ from the law and the prophets. And here Moses and Elijah imagery is used to remind us of them It's reminding us of our task, that as the church, we are to preach Christ to the world from the law and from the prophets. And 
we have authority to do so. God will be with us as he was with them. Though Moses was one man, he stood before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies. And though Elijah was one man, he stood in the face of much opposition, sadly even from his kinsmen according to the flesh who were guilty of idolatry. They stood. Why? Because they stood before God who is Lord of all the earth and they had authority from him. The same is true for you and I, brothers and sisters, who should encourage us to worship God and to witness concerning him in this world. These witnesses are also two in number because they are said to be the two olive trees of Zechariah 4. Clearly, this is a reference to the Zechariah 4 passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon. There, Zechariah saw a vision of a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each lamps, on each of the lamps uh, that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. I will not take much time to explain this passage further, but notice this, a careful consideration of that text reveals that the two olive trees symbolize the Lord's anointed ones, probably Zerubbabel, the governor, who was a descendant from David, and Joshua, the high priest. These have the task of rebuilding the temple of God, and the promise is that these anointed ones will be fully empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the task. The lamps will, through them, have a never-ending supply of oil. The meaning of the passage is that the temple will be rebuilt because God will supply for their every need. It will be accomplished, the text says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now bring that into Revelation chapter 11. We've just been shown a vision of the temple measured, temple that is secure and yet vulnerable. Who does the temple represent? Every reference to it in the book of Revelation makes it clear that it's the heavenly temple in the church who worships there. What is the promise then by making reference to these two olive trees? It's this, just as it was in the days of Zechariah as he prophesied, so it prophesied, so is it now. God is going to supply for every one of your needs so that you might fulfill your mission so that the temple of God, the church, might be built up stone upon stone until the Lord returns. There are very many other reasons for the witnesses being two in number, but these things that I have mentioned I think are central. One other that comes to mind is that when Jesus sent out the 70, he sent them out what? Two by two to witness, to do their task. Two witnesses are required to establish a case. Two witnesses correspond to and carry out the ministry of Moses and Elijah as she preached Christ from the Law and the Prophets. And just as the Lord promised Israel that He would, by the power of the Spirit, provide for the rebuilding of the Old Covenant Temple through His two olive trees, so too will He provide for the building up of the New Covenant Temple, the church, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see what I mean about needing to stay in gear when we're studying the book of Revelation? and to just force ourselves to be consistent in our interpretation of the text and not to slip out of the symbolic interpretation that is clearly needed in this book back into literalism. It's difficult, I think. You can feel me laboring at it, can't you? And I'm making you labor as you listen to me. But it's important. I want to apply this text before we close. And I need to ask this simple question of all of you. How is your witness? How is it? With all of these things in mind, how is your witness? Are you witnessing concerning Christ day by day as His people? I want you to recognize that witnessing involves much more than the proclamation of the gospel. It does. It involves more 
than the proclamation of the gospel. It involves more than telling of Christ. It also involves holy living, does it not, brothers and sisters? If we are to be faithful witnesses, are we not to live holy in this world? Are we not to be concerned to live holy in our homes so that our children, if we have children in the home, see us and the way that we live and are in fact drawn to Christ through our witness, through our holy living? Are we not to live holy in the community as we interact with Christians and non-Christians? Everything that you see. Everything that you say and everything that you do is observed by those around you, brothers and sisters. You have to ask the question, is what I am saying and how I say it and when I say it and is what I'm doing bringing glory to God through Christ? Am I being a faithful witness or am I bringing shame to the name of Christ? Our primary task in this church age is to witness. How is your witness? Are you living holy? And are you even living holy in the church? Because there is a sense in which we witness to one another, right? We have faith in Christ, but here we are called to reflect Christ to one another, even in the church. And do not forget that the world looks in upon the church, even though they might not be a part of it. They notice how it is that we live in community with one another. And how we live matters. Holy living matters if we are to be faithful witnesses in this world. It also involves living a life marked by love for God, dependence upon Him, and thankfulness to Him. Is that evident to all who look look in upon your life? That you have a sincere and living love for God. And that you are living day by day in dependence upon Him. Not independent in a prideful sort of way, but in dependence upon God, coming before Him in prayer and trusting in Him to provide for all of your needs. And are you thankful? Are you thankful? I think uh, Russell, at the beginning of the service here, in that, in that prayer um, of, of invocation, he really emphasized the need to come with thankfulness before the Lord. Yes, there are many things that are difficult in this world. Yes, we, we, we struggle through trials and tribulations, but we must maintain a thankful disposition in order to give glory to our God who gives us all good things and preserves us in the midst of trials and tribulations. And I want you to see, brothers and sisters, also that we witness as we gather for corporate worship. You may not realize that. You might think of witnessing as being something only that you do out on the streets or something, you know. No, it is something that we do just by coming here and doing what we are doing now. It is a witness or testimony to the world that there is a God who deserves to be worshipped. And if any were to notice what it is that we do here, there would be this testimony. There is a God who is to be worshipped, and we have sinned against Him. But He, being merciful and gracious, has provided a remedy for our sin through faith in Christ we can come to. There is a, a witnessing or a testimony that is happening even here as we gather for corporate worship. We gather on the Lord's Day to give glory to God. And I think people take note of this. I was reflecting upon this um, uh, earlier, but many, many people in our valley take note of the fact that we gather together for worship. You know, I, I woke up this morning and I got in my car and two, kid, two of my kids came with me and it was fairly early, but I, there were a couple of neighbors who were out. What did they see me doing? I mean, I was dressed like this. They knew what was going on. They knew I was going to to worship, right? And, and so even there, though I don't have a super close relationship with him, there is this observation of the world upon us that we 
prioritize in our lives the worship of the one true God. That is what we are to do on the Lord's day. I think, brothers and sisters, we must be sure that we have completely shed that old, superficial, American evangelical thought that we go to church on Sunday when it is convenient for us and when we feel like it, as if it were mainly about us. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? We must shed that thought completely and make sure that none of it remains in our hearts. We must remember that we gather together on the Lord's day, which is the Christian Sabbath, in obedience to the fourth commandment. And we do so to give worship to God. It is not that we come here primarily for ourselves, but to give worship to the triune God. He is to be worshipped in this world for many reasons, one of them being that when we gather for worship on the Lord's day, in accordance with what He has commanded in the Holy Scriptures, we testify concerning His value and worth. We testify concerning Christ who rose from the dead on the third day, on Sunday, the Lord's day. We testify to the world concerning all of those things, how important it is that we come to worship the triune God in this world faithfully on the Lord's day. Just think of this for a moment. In verses 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 11, the church was called what? The temple. Picture the old covenant temple. There it is, residing in Jerusalem. And there the people of God flock to it continuously. And what do they flock to it to do? To be edified primarily? What do they come to the temple to do but to offer up worship to the living God? And and there they are worshiping Him in the world. All of the nations are looking in upon this, right? Going, what are these doing? They're worshiping the triune God. And in so doing, they are testifying concerning Him. They are witnessing in a sense our worship Our worship does many things, but it also does that. It is a testimony to the world in which we live. Indeed, we are encouraged when we come to worship. Indeed, uh, that is one of our objectives, the building up of the body of Christ, the encouragement of the Christian, but it all falls under the prime objective of giving glory to God in this world. When you gather for worship, you are testifying to all that God is worthy of our worship and that we must come to Him through Jesus Christ. To neglect it is to communicate to all who see you neglect it, that God is unworthy and that Christ is of little significance. You are saying, this is really all about me. I will go when I want to go, when I feel like I need to go. But God says, no, make me supreme and worship me faithfully as I have called you to do as my people. Our, our corporate worship uh, testifies to God and to Christ. By, we also witness by maintaining unity with one another. That is the last point I wanted to make here under the broad heading that witnessing involves more than just the preaching of the gospel. We witness by maintaining unity with one another how important it is, brothers and sisters, that we love one another and that the world see that. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Trust me, the world is watching. And how much shame comes to the name of Christ when the church fails in this regard. But how much glory goes to God and to Christ when the church succeeds in this task of loving one another. We must labor to maintain unity. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So witnessing involves more than the proclamation of the gospel, but witnessing does not happen unless the gospel is proclaimed. Witnessing simply does not happen unless the gospel is proclaimed. In order to testify, something must be said. Wouldn't you agree? In order to testify, something must be said. And we must testify from the scriptures concerning the guilt of sin. We must testify from the scriptures concerning Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Indeed, he has risen from the grave. I did not see it, but the apostles did. And I trust their testimony that indeed the word they have written that we have before us today is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We must testify from the scriptures concerning Christ, his life, his death and resurrection. And having testified, we must call men and women to faith and repentance and to baptism within Christ's church. This, brothers and sisters, is our task. The proclamation of the gospel, but also the living out of the Christian life so that Others might be drawn to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So how is your witness? That is the question. How is our witness as a congregation? Let us bow for prayer. Father in heaven, you have left us in this world, a world marked by trials and tribulations for a time. We trust that you have a purpose for it. Your desire is that disciples would be made of all nations. And you have left us here, the church, to accomplish that task. We pray that you would, Lord. We thank you for the advancement of the kingdom that we have seen in the last 2,000 years of human history. We pray that the kingdom would advance more and more. Use us, Lord, in that endeavor. Lord, make us faithful witnesses, individually, but also corporately as the church. We pray that you would help us in this task, all for the glory of your name. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, amen.